We started on our journey together with a paranormal investigation at Eloise Asylum. We left the asylum eager to learn the truth. We bought our own equipment and decided to document our findings. And we're here to share them with you. I'm Melissa. I'm Mandy. Welcome to our paranormal experience. Welcome back to Paranormal Experience. Today we have another true story behind the movie episode. We are going to be discussing the true story behind the haunting in Connecticut. So if you haven't seen the movie, there might be some spoilers. If you have seen it and want to know a little more about the true story, stay with us. This episode is going to discuss sexual assault and viewer discretion is advised. In 1916, a colonial revival house was built in Southern Connecticut. In 1936, just 20 years later, the house was converted into a funeral home. The house continued to operate as a funeral home until the mid-1980s, when the funeral home moved to a different location in Connecticut. The house stayed vacant for a few years after the funeral home relocated. The new owners, who owned a real estate office, wanted to convert the home into a real estate office, but zoning issues prevented them. I thought this was strange because it was a business before, but it wasn't allowed to remain a business. I don't know if the zoning changed maybe while the funeral home was in business. Right. I don't know. Maybe it's different there. Here in Michigan, things are either zoned residential or commercial. Sometimes they can be zoned for both, but... I think it is strange that they weren't able to make their real estate business there. So instead, they decided to convert the home into two apartments that could be rented. The large white house was big enough. According to Zillow, the house is 3,084 square feet. Currently, it has five bedrooms and two bathrooms. Is that the combined... Or is that each separate apartment? I don't believe it is currently separated. Okay. I think that, I, I'm, you know what, I'm not sure. I that it, believe that is the whole house. Okay. I think that it is a house with just one owner now. It's no longer converted into apartments. The Snedeker family was a larger family. Father Allen and mother Carmen Snedeker had four children. Jennifer, Allen Jr., Bradley, and Philip. Philip was about 12 or 13 years old when he suddenly had a lump on his neck. Carmen took him to the doctor on a Friday, who ordered a biopsy the next Monday. The results were devastating for the family. Philip had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer of the immune system. Fortunately, Philip would be able to be treated, but the family would need to commute about 300 miles to a hospital in Connecticut for him to receive the treatment that the family thought was their best option. That's crazy. I mean, I don't know how things were back then or maybe just in different states, but here it takes forever to get a biopsy or a different diagnosis. I feel like you have to wait weeks. It was pretty small when he went on the Friday. And by the time he got there on Monday, it had swelled up huge. 
I think that the doctor recognized something pretty serious, you know, and okay, that's what it seemed like to me. Yeah, because you're right; it does take a long time. I mean, there's been a couple times where I've had to go and get something checked. You can't get it's in for over a it's month. Been, <laughs> yeah, more than a month. Yeah, and I've thought, well, my God, if this was something serious, yeah. you know. Carmen was driving down a road and saw a sign for rent in front of this large white house. She thought it would be out of the family's price range, but decided to look into it. She found that it was split into two apartments. It was big enough, close enough to the treatment center, and although it would be tough, the family could afford it. The family claims that they did not know that the home had been previously used as a funeral home upon moving in. They claim that they found this out when they saw mortuary items in the basement. That would be really creepy. Like if you didn't know. Oh, yeah. And then you just found mortuary items, embalming items in your basement. Well, for the most part, I wouldn't really expect to find a lot of stuff left over. You know, I mean, unless you buy like a house as is, you know, like maybe right. somebody had passed away and the people are just selling the house and all their belongings with it. Right. You would I would be would surprised to find anything like that. Right. Or anything at all, you know. You know, and some stuff I wonder if it was just maybe so big or that it was just hard to move. But you would That's think true. you would think that they wouldn't want to spend money to buy new yeah. yeah, but maybe I mean, if, if it's older equipment, that I way. was just going to say, like, I'm assuming that they moved to a bigger, better location, so they probably had new equipment. To touch on some items that were found in the home, there was a casket lift, a blood drainage sink, a few pictures of the deceased, toe tags, and coffin handles. This might not be a complete list. Why do you think there were pictures of the deceased? Do they do that? You know, that was something that was in the movie where they had found pictures. But in the movie, it showed pictures of people. They had, like, carvings on them. Like, they did this whole carving thing in the movie, and that was not a thing in real life. Like, that was not relevant. That was just Hollywood stuff. I don't know. I thought that that was weird. I mean, I could see maybe taking pictures for some type of record keeping, maybe if the death was questionable or I, I don't know the reasoning for that, but you would think that they wouldn't leave that anywhere. Right. You would expect to hear pictures during an autopsy, but you wouldn't expect a funeral home to have that. Yeah. 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 But they did find... I guess, pictures in real life. That's according to the mother, Carmen. Back to the family claiming they did not know that the home had been previously used as a funeral home. This is a heavily argued claim. They claimed that they did not know that it was a funeral home because there was a lumber and just other things that were being used during the renovation, work materials blocking the entrance to the basement. And when Carmen originally looked at the home, she just didn't want to ask them to, the workers and stuff, to move or to move things so that she could go down and look at the basement. I mean, it's a rental, right? And, you know, I can understand that because she was trying to find something she could afford. She was trying to find something closer to the hospital and something that that would fit all of the family. Yeah. So who would really care 
what the basement looked like. Right. Not a lot of room to be picky. Right. But during an interview on Sally Jesse Raphael, the neighbors claimed that there was a sign on the front of the house, you know, a funeral home sign. And I did see some pictures of the house, and I do get what they're saying. The sign, when I saw the pictures of the house, was covered with a piece of plywood. Okay. And Carmen claimed that when they moved in, that was covered in plywood. Other neighbors argued that it was not. There was one in particular who said, yes, it was covered in plywood. So that that seems to be a bit of an argument. Which it would make sense that it was covered if it was no longer being used as a funeral home. You would take the sign off of your business. Right. Or cover it. Right. And it had been vacant for a few years, but they were the first tenants. Well, them and the person that lived above them were the first tenants since it had been used as a funeral home. During another interview with Midnight Highway... Carmen claimed that before moving in, she had a dream that the house was a funeral home. And upon arrival with the U-Haul, she asked her husband, Alan, to check. He came back with the attitude of, how could you not have known that this was a funeral home? There's a bunch of embalming items out in the open in the basement. So she explained that she didn't go down there. They decided that since no one had passed away in the home, that it was a funeral home, it should be fine, and continued the move. I almost would feel better living in a house where somebody passed away than in a funeral home. I feel like people live in houses where people have passed away every day, and it's not an issue. I mean, and maybe sometimes it is an issue, but I I feel like often it's not. Right, because a lot of people do die at home. I think that I might not want to live there if there was a murder or suicide or something like that. Like a violent, unresolved type death Right, but a natural death, I think I'd be okay with that. There was a woman who was renting the upstairs portion of the home, and she stated, and this was for a current affair, that she worked for the real estate company that was owned by the owner of the home. He owned both the home and the real estate company. She claimed that since she worked for the real estate office, she knows that the information that it was previously used as a funeral home was disclosed to the family. She also stated that the family was at one point two months behind on rent and believes that that was their reason for claiming it was haunted. That could be true, but I also feel like if she works for the real estate company, She might have a biased biased opinion. opinion. And it could be true. I mean, we saw that with Amityville. I I mean, we don't know for sure, but I believe that that probably was the case. I mean, they have where the lawyer said they drank the bottle of wine and concocted this scheme. And it could be. I just think like as rational, as a rational human being, there's so many other avenues I would go through first, right? Like if I could not afford my rent... And my son was undergoing these cancer treatments. Like, I think they knew, right? They knew why they wanted to live there. I don't know if she approached the landlord, but I think that that would be a reasonable thing to do. Say, hey, we don't need to be here anymore. We can't afford it. His cancer treatments are really running us into the ground. Mm -hmm. Is there any way that we can get out of this lease? But not everybody is 
sensible or does sensible things. So I can't say that, but I mean, it seems reasonable that he may have potentially considered that. I would think most people would. I mean, but there are some people that wouldn't. I know some people are all business and that's okay too. If I were the landlord, I would probably be okay with that just because they're not able to pay anyway. Right. So how does them staying there to till the end of their lease help him? Really, you could be in a situation where you need to evict somebody mm-hmm. and they're staying there for months with right. non-payment. Right. So, Melissa, now I want to talk about the Sally Jesse Raphael interview. I know we both watched it on YouTube. It it's great. You should guys, you guys should all watch it on YouTube. I feel like I forgot about how 80s talk shows were. Those were different days. It they was were. shocking. <laughs> it was cringy. I mean, no no disrespect to Sally Jeff- Jesse Raphael or anybody on the show. It wasn't about that. It was just like the show format. And it was really popular. It was. And I mean, I know that certain shows back then were more crazy, like Jerry Springer and all that. I just, I don't remember her show being like that. I don't think it was viewed as that. But looking back, I'm like, oh my God. Right. One of the things that really got me was like just the arguing and the people talking over each other. It's almost like they purposely put together a group of people that are like about to fight. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they're just like screaming it out. You know, it's, it's almost like how people on Facebook fight now back and forth with right. their comments, but the 80s version. The 80s version, yeah, people were doing it on television. I was really blown away by captions. You know, you know how when you're watching like a ghost hunting show, mm-hmm. it'll say whomever's name paranormal investigator. Well, this would cut to the family and it would say their names and it would say sodomized by ghosts. <laughs> That's terrible title. And they wouldn't even be able, they wouldn't even be talking about that at the moment. And I was just like, oh my God, they're putting the worst possible attention grabbing caption that they can. In on case these you people. were like flipping through with your remote. Yes. You would stop, right? I didn't even think about that. That is so true. We don't do that anymore. We don't flip through with our remotes, or at least I don't. No, I don't either. There were people in the audience making comments. Some of them, I think, were just random audience members, and some seemed to be on their side and believed them, and then some people had negative comments. But there were also people neighbors, knew. neighbors yes. in the audience. And I thought, I mean, that had to be planned, right? Well, it would have to be. Like, they didn't just see this somewhere like, oh, join us for the Schneider family on <laughs> Sally Jesse Raphael and, like, the neighbors all went. I mean, I, I did wonder. I don't remember how things like that went back then. I don't know. But so the one lady that was the Karen of her day would watch from her house at 3 a.m. At 3 a.m. And she would make notes on what was going on outside. And then she would wait for a news story to come out that would correlate with that timing. Earlier, when I was listening to a different interview, and I don't remember which one it was, but she herself had made mention of writing down license plates. She was definitely the Karen of her day. And we haven't yet gotten into the claims made by the family 
But yeah, she was debunking their claims with these things. Like if they heard a noise at night, she would say, oh, well, this truck drove by at this time. Maybe what she's saying is true. Maybe Maybe some of it was correct. You never know. Maybe some of it, maybe all of it was correct. We don't know. But she was very, I mean, she was on that show with her notebook. (laughs) She was (laughs) with her notebook. Yes. So then Ed and Lorraine Warren came on. They did. And I was, I was shocked because Ed was feisty. He was was very feisty. He was being feisty. I have never, I never knew he was feisty like that. I don't know a lot about them. I've said that before. I learned from doing this podcast things about them. I didn't expect that. I have seen some interviews with him. I've never seen him be that feisty. But if that guy was making false claims against him and his wife and the family, I can see why he would get feisty. Maybe it's just the uh, late 80s, early 90s talk shows that just bring it out of you. Because there was a lot of, the neighbors were angry. They were really going off on the family and just really trying to debunk them. And maybe the neighbors were correct. But there was a point where Ed Warren looked at them and he was like, we know the landlord paid you to be here. And they were, they didn't even deny it. They were like, well, how much did you make today? They didn't even deny it. So like they were being paid by the landlord to be on the show and say that the house was not haunted. That was what I took from that. Back in those days, I don't think people wanted to rent from a haunted house. I feel like today, like that would be more of a draw, right? But if you were a landlord and people were claiming that your house was haunted and then you weren't going to get any renters, you might want people to not say that. There was a neighbor on there that was talking about a different neighbor whose name was Jean that had been over at the home and experienced activity. She was actually bit on the back of her thigh and smelled a pungent odor. And I do recall the Karen that wrote down the information in her booklet. She also said that that woman, Jean, had experienced paranormal activity. I did think it's strange. I did think it was strange that they didn't have her on the show when she was kind of like on the side of the family. I think Karen was trying to debunk it. She was trying to debunk Jean's (laughs) Jean's experiences too. (laughs) They did ask Ed to provide the name of the priest that exercised the house. You're going to hear more about that in a moment too. He would not provide it. And I just want to note that. They did claim that the priest wanted to remain anonymous. I can understand that to a point as well. But I mean, there were times when the arguing was so extreme. You couldn't hear. Yeah, no, but you couldn't understand what anybody was saying. It was was intense. It was cringy for sure. It's a flashback. (laughs) Yeah. Back to the haunting timeline. The family has just moved into the home. They may or may not have known that the house had been previously used as a funeral home. Carmen, she's the mother again, states that the first in the family to be affected by the haunting was her son, Philip, and he is the child that is going through cancer treatments at the time. She claims that he was affected basically day one, hearing voices and feeling just a heavy presence in the home. In the interview with Midnight Highway, Carmen claims that upon arrival to the home, as Philip was picking out his room, she was mopping the floor in the house. 
as one does upon moving in. I mean, to just clean everything. I can clean everything. Right. Yeah, you do. The mop water turned red and became thick. She didn't feel that this was supernatural at the time, but did show a person working on the conversion of the house. And she stated that that person walked out the door and she never saw them again. What would you think if you were mopping and the water turned red and became thick? I would freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, I don't understand why she didn't think it was supernatural. I don't know what I would think would cause that. I... I feel like I can't even put myself in that situation. Like, would you think that there was something on the floor that reacted with whatever you were mopping with? I think that just a color change, I would think that. But the fact that it turned thick, thick. and That's fast, right? Like, if it would have been a few days later, I wouldn't have even thought nothing of it because I would have thought something must have gotten in it. For it to change that fast, I think I might think it was supernatural. Philip and his brother Bradley ended up taking bedrooms in the basement. The timeline, there is really no timeline given. I'm really just trying to piece this together as best as I can. So I get the impression like that when she's mopping the floor and he's picking out his room that their nieces had not come to stay yet. Philip and his brother Bradley ended up taking bedrooms in the basement. So I think they probably moved shortly after moving in. And this was an area that coffins were supposedly sold from and it was two separate rooms. I believe that the family actually converted it into two separate rooms themselves. The embalming area was in the back of the basement, according to Carmen, blocked off by two solid wooden doors. The kids were not allowed in the embalming area because, one, there was large sliding locks on the outside of the doors and someone could become trapped in there. And two, she was unsure what type of chemicals had been previously used in that area and she was afraid it wasn't safe. I mean, good points. It is a good point, but I think if I was truly afraid of the chemicals, I might not let my kid stay down there at all. If my child had cancer, I probably would not let him stay down there with potential chemicals. I think I would be concerned about I don't feel like they knew as much about that back then, though, as we do now, right? right? Like potential cancer-causing things. If I was a kid... I would totally go in that room. I would have been in that room. I would have been in that room. Nobody would have known I would have been in that room. I would have been in and out of that room all the time. They should have put a lock on the outside. That would have been a good plan. You got to do what you got to do to keep your kids out of the embalming room. (laughs) As one does. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As the family lived in the house, 13-year-old Philip, I don't know, he might have been about 14 at this time. Like I said, there's really no good timeline. They said his personality started to grow darker and darker over a period of time. He started dressing different. I get the impression, you know, kind of goth. Writing poetry about necrophilia, they claim, which is going to be important later. And his attitude just became more depressive and even kind of mean over time. There's a couple of thoughts that I have on that. He's a teenager. I think that that is the age Let's take away the poetry about necrophilia. Because I feel like that is kind of over the top, right? Poetry, let's just say even about death or anything scary or creepy, that could be a normal teenage phase. This is like 86, 87. That was very normal back then, right? Like that was how kids rebelled. Am I wrong? Like You're thinking of the whole 80s satanic panic, 
the kids back then went through that type of thing? A lot did, at least, right? And then the other thing that I was thinking, he's facing his own mortality at such a young age. Like, maybe this is how he's dealing with it or expressing it or trying to understand it. I know, that must have been so hard on the entire family. Absolutely. Especially him. I would not be surprised to hear him acting out in a variety of ways. But like I said, the necrophilia, not so normal. (laughs) But everything else, I feel, is pretty normal for a child that age. So after a few months living in the home, I'm not exactly sure how long, because like I, I keep saying about the timeline, two of Carmen's sister's children came to live with the family. She stated on the interview with Midnight Highway that her sister had become sick, but didn't specify with what. This already large family of six has become a family of eight. I assume this is when the boys moved down to the basement, but like I said, I'm not sure. There's really not a clear clear picture. One reason that I feel that it wasn't very long before the nieces came to stay with the family is because this was given as a reason that Philip and Bradley were staying in the basement. This is kind of what led me to believe that they had switched from upstairs to basement. The three girls took the three upstairs rooms and the boys took the two downstairs rooms. In the Sally Jesse interview, Carmen claims that the family, aside from Philip, started experiencing paranormal activity after the girls moved into the home. In the Midnight Highway interview, Carmen states that it took a year for her to believe the haunting claims of the children. In other sources, I see it stated that the rest of the family did not experience paranormal activity until Philip was out of the house. We'll talk about that a little bit more in depth in a few. So, Melissa, I know I've said this in other podcasts, but it makes me think about the two girls that came there. They're teenagers. And they already did have one girl, right? So now there's three. Right. There's three girls. And these two girls, they came to live there because their mom is sick. That's what you had thought, right? So they're probably going through some emotions of their own. And then, you know, the Snedeker family is going through their own emotions. I wonder if it was the girls, the whole hormone thing that we talked about before that causes like poltergeist activity and all of the range of emotions that gave the haunting more energy. Yes, absolutely. Or attracted it to them somehow. Philip was already experiencing it from day one, correct? correct? So just the rest of the family hadn't. So yeah, maybe it gave them more energy to feed off of. Right. And Philip's emotions too. I mean, maybe it's the same for boys. I know they always say teenage girls are more hormonal, but he had reason to be more emotional. Absolutely, he did. Some of the things that Philip claimed to experience included things like a tall man with long black hair down to his hips, a boy in Superman pajamas, and a man in a pinstriped suit. The man with long hair would sometimes threaten Philip or sometimes just stare at him saying his name over and over. That sounds like a scary ghost. He does sound scary. The Superman one, the little boy with the Superman. It's not scary. It's kind of sad. Like I want to hug him. When this started, Philip's mother, Carmen, talked to the doctor. 
she claims that she thought it was possible side effects of the treatment that he was undergoing, which I think is sensible. I would probably assume that too. I would too. The doctor stated that it was not possible, that it was not a side effect of the treatment. I don't believe it was at this time. I believe it was a little later. There's no clear given timeline again. At some point, Philip was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Philip started playing tricks on his siblings, like locking his brother in a chest or spitting his brother around on a gurney that was left in the home. It said that Philip claimed not to remember these events. Eventually, this got so bad that he attacked one of his cousins that was living with the family. And this was when he was admitted to a mental facility. And I believe he spent over a month in that facility. I think that this is when he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. So I wonder if the schizophrenia was something that he was always going to have. I'm not really familiar with that type of mental illness. Or could it have been brought on by the events in the house? Well, I think that what it would be, and I'm not sure because I'm definitely not super fluent in different mental illnesses. People with schizophrenia often have like visions or hallucinations. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're weighing it like either he's schizophrenic or the house is haunted. Okay. Like I think that if you claimed your house is haunted, you could be misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. I'm not 100% sure. Right, because I wasn't sure of the type of testing. And, you know, his behavior, locking his brother in a chest normal? or spinning them on a gurney. Normal. Totally normal for brothers. Attacking the cousin. Again, I feel like the stuff that he does, there's always that one thing yeah, it's that's, just over the line. It's just a little, yeah, it crosses that line. Yeah, because like attacking the cousin. And I've heard a few different things about this attack. Like I've heard that he would attack her trying to rape her. In most sources, I didn't see that. It just said like he attacked her. I'm not really sure. I saw it so little that I don't want to assume that that's correct information, mm-hmm. I guess. It could have been quite violent. Um, I, I don't know. But the rest of the stuff I think is normal. I mean, like one time I set a paper plate on fire. I hope my mom's not listening. <laughs> I set a paper plate on fire. I don't even know why. Like, why did I do that? Like, why did I set a paper plate on fire? And I dropped it on the carpet. And so I had to hurry up and put that out because I didn't want to burn the house down. Yeah. And I did, but it singed the top of the carpet because the carpet was longer then. Yes. And I had to get down there with scissors and trim the top of the carpet off. So there was always this one circle. That was lower. It was just a little bit lower. And yeah. nobody ever noticed. P- kids do weird stuff. They do. My friend Crystal and I got walked in by her mom. Her, with, she had a gas stove and we had Barbie heads boiling in a pot and their legs over the flames. Kids, don't try any of that at home. No, do not. Kids today don't do stuff like that anymore. Well, they constantly have entertainment in their hands with their phone. We had to create our own. Yeah. (laughs) Me and Mandy are old enough to where we boiled Barbie heads and set paper plates on fire. (laughs) And I'm normal. I'm totally normal. You're normal too. Maybe you are not. That's why we're doing this together. Maybe. (laughs) We do, we do paranormal <laughs> investigate, so hmm, are we normal? I don't know. From my understanding, this is when the remaining family members in the house started experiencing the heavy paranormal activity when he was put in the mental facility. There was a point on Sally Jesse 
that people were disputing the haunting by saying that Philip was on drugs, which they did find out that like most teens, Philip did dabble in drugs. There were people, their neighbors, um, younger neighbors that said, you know, they know he had done acid and that he could have been hallucinating. And I mean, this turned into a big argument. And I mean, people were really at it at this point. And one of the cousins that had resided with the family tried to speak up and say, but Philip wasn't there the whole time. He was sent to, and then somebody's hand waved and she shut up. And I think she was saying he was sent to the mental facility. They kiboshed that conversation and no one was listening to her enough to notice that she stopped mid-sentence except for me and probably other viewers. But nobody on the set, right? Because they were all arguing so hard. I can't imagine what that argument would have turned into if it would have started including. I mean, she was trying to defend the haunting. But, you know, if they would have said, oh, but he was in the mental facility, I can't So imagine. then they would just discount everything because he was in the mental facility. Right. Yeah. Right. And people did stand up and say things like, oh, I, you know, you're saying that this isn't real just because he was on drugs. Like, kids do drugs, and it's true. I mean, a lot of them do. We aren't advocating for that. Kids don't do drugs. I mean, it does happen, right? Teenagers do stuff. Especially teenagers that are under high amounts of stress. Yeah. Living in a haunted house. Yeah. Living in a potentially haunted house with <laughs> many other people. Oh, God. Yeah. Trying to, yeah, going through <laughs> hormones. Oh, my God. Imagine all that. Claims from the family included disembodied voices, shadow figures, Black mass apparitions that didn't seem heavy until they were like next to you. And then they felt like a 200 pound man sitting on your bed next to you. They claimed that they were sexually assaulted by these spirits. And this sexual assault included rape and sodomization, which is why the family, or at least Carmen, believes that it was an incubus and succubus. That's scary. I was just sitting here like as you were saying that. Would you be more scared of disembodied voices or shadow figures or, like, apparitions that you could see? Oh, man, that's a tough one, Mandy. That is a tough one. I think that I might be more scared of the disembodied voice. I think it would be the black mass apparition, right? Mm Because it's heavy. Mm -hmm. Like, that would scare me. Like, it would seem like... I mean, it would all scare me, but if I had to pick... Yeah, I think I would pick that one. The reason that I'm saying that is I think that if I seen something, maybe I could get away from it. Like, know where it was, right? Whereas, like, a voice could be everywhere. Yeah, and nowhere. (laughs) All at the same time. (laughs) Back to the sexual assault. The sodomization in particular is a very large claim made by both Alan and Carmen. They describe it as a burning And Carmen later claimed that it did not feel like a penis, but rather felt like an object. She also claimed that she would experience this in bed while doing dishes, running down the street, and she would sometimes hear laughter. And I'm sorry that I'm laughing, but I don't know why I feel like this sounds like a really terrible tampon commercial. 
like running down the street doing the dishes. <laughs> it's like that's what it reminds me of. When, you know, while you're riding a horse, you know, I don't know why. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, because that's terrible, and I, I don't think that's funny. No, it is terrible. The burning part kind of has me, like, burning, like, fire or burning, like... They also used the word stinging. And then I felt this stinging uh, penetration in, in my uh, anal area. I was also thrown <gasps> off because... It was during this that she said she wasn't aware that you could be raped with an object. And I'm not quite sure what she meant by that. That makes no sense to me. Yeah, I wasn't really sure, but I I was very thrown off by that comment. So another claim made by the family was shower curtains wrapping themselves around family members from their feet all the way up to their face, like suffocating them. And this was in the movie. Um, But it happened to a niece in the movie, I believe. And the claim is made by Carmen in real life. And she claims that it did happen to her specifically. But in the Midnight Highway interview, she claims that it not only happened to her specifically, but she claims that it happened to multiple family members. She says that she does still not and will not ever have a vinyl shower curtain in her shower. She claimed that it was wrapped around her with such a force that her niece had to, it took both of them to get it off of her. That's terrifying. I've been in the shower before and the vinyl curtain will come towards you. Yeah, or like it'll grab your leg and like get stuck for a second. Yeah, but it's never tried to kill me. No. (laughs) Alan would hear music when he was laying in his bed. He started bringing a baseball bat to bed and eventually a gun. He became fearful that because he was so frightened, he would like wake up in the middle of the night and shoot one of his children. You know, how do you defend yourself from a spirit in the movies? It's holy water crossing, you know, but like, really, what, what do you do? Actually, I think that we might talk about that a little bit at the end. Okay. It's also claimed that during a video documentary... A crucifix fell off the wall, but unfortunately, the camera itself did not catch this. It caught audio, people saying like, oh my god, did that just fall off the wall? They also say that the family did reach out to neighbors and police for help. Carmen claims an officer almost shot a door in the home when it when it opened by itself. On Sally Jesse Raphael, Carmen claimed that she was possessed at one point. She was in her room. But all of a sudden, she wasn't in her room, and she was in total darkness. She said she was taken to an area called Ethrium. Have you heard of that? I tried Googling it. I didn't get anything. I've never heard of that. I didn't know if she was calling it that or if that was an actual place that she had known. She did claim it was a place for lost souls and that she was there for eight hours. I went into this place. It was called Ethrium, a desert road of hot tears, and I was taken down this road. These represent souls, lost souls. I could actually feel the emotion, the anger, the hurt, the desperation, the sadness. There were no positive emotions. They were all human, negative emotions. In the Midnight Highway interview, Carmen claimed this happened many times and she was taken to many realms of hell. She claimed that she often smelt popcorn popping And heard an old phone ringing in the mortuary part of the basement, like an old school style phone. Carmen claims that her husband at the time, Alan, 
was also taken into a trance-like state. I don't know if he went to the realms of hell or the ethereum, but it just says trance-like state. Dishes were also said to put themselves away after the table was set by one of the nieces. And this was portrayed in the movie. Carmen was told by, I don't know if this was a voice or apparition, but she was told by something that it would kill her daughter. Alan was told in the same fashion by a voice or apparition that it would kill their son. That's terrifying. If this was happening to me, if anything told me it was going to kill my kids, I would be out. I wouldn't stay. And it, I mean, you got to think about all the sexual assault too. I would too. I mean, I'm sure they, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, this is real. Maybe they have their reasons. Well, and we will get into a few of those. Okay. we do. Okay. Because of the activity, someone at Carmen's work gave her the information for Ed and Lorraine Warren. The family called them to investigate the home. And they did investigate. They investigated for nine weeks. Ed and Lorraine spent every night in that house for nine weeks. I mean, that's a lot of people in the house. A lot Right? Because there's already eight. So you add them, there's ten people. Plus they had another investigator with them. So eleven people. And... I do believe that there was other people that they got to help them out with different things during this time. And they didn't accept any money. The third person that they were accompanied by was John Zaffis, I believe is how you say it, who was the host of the show Haunted Collectors. I guess it was super popular. I've never seen it. I think it still might be popular. He is also Lorraine Warren's nephew. His father is the twin brother of Lorraine Warren. I had no idea that she had a twin. Me either, and I always think that's super interesting, so I'm surprised we haven't run across that before. Lorraine claimed that the home had demonic activity that was connected to the former funeral home employees engaging in necrophilia. So now this goes back to if Philip was really writing poetry about necrophilia, that connects, right? Yeah. According to People Magazine... Alan Schnedeker and John Zaffis claim two priests visited the home but were scared and left. A third priest came and exercised the home, ridding it of its evil. But according to a 1992 article on the Hartford Current, the local Roman Catholic Church claimed that no authorized exorcism was ever conducted at the home. Ray Garten wrote a book about the home. He was hired by Ed Warren. His name sounds familiar to me. He is a horror fiction writer. So I probably read his books. You probably have. But I do think it's strange that Ed Warren hired a professional horror fiction writer to write this book. The book is titled In a Dark Place. I did not read it for this podcast episode. He claims that the accounts that the family gave him didn't mesh with each other. And I get the impression that this is between Alan and Carmen. What they're saying just doesn't match up. Okay. And that Ed Warren told him to use what works and write it anyway, just to make it scary. So to me, that takes away some credibility. I don't know what I think about this haunting. I mean, it definitely takes away some credibility. And I don't know. I mean, did the title of the book say based on a true story or inspired by a true story? That is a good question. Lorraine Warren claims the real story includes things like sounds of chains pulling coffins up the stairs at 3 a.m., 
levitating blankets, rosary beads being pulled apart, and a seemingly supernatural occurrence of a large chunk of tree falling for what seemed like no other reason except for that the exorcism was occurring at that time. So they were performing an exorcism, from my understanding, and a huge chunk of tree just fell right into the family's front yard. You know what I realized that I didn't really know or think about before? When I think of exorcism, I always thought of it as a person being exorcised. I didn't know they could do that to a house. It didn't really occur to me that it was strange, but I don't think I've heard of it before now that you say that. Right. I did hear Carmen say, and this was on the Sally Jesse show, you know, because people were saying that the exorcism never occurred, that if you dig down 10 inches, I think, in each corner of the house, like on the outside, you'll find some sort of like medallion. It still doesn't prove that this from the exorcism, though. You're right. It doesn't. It wasn't too long after that, that the family moved. They had spent two years total in the home. Philip did go into remission and was able to become a truck driver, and he had four children of his own. Unfortunately, the cancer did return, and it claimed his life in 2012. He was only 38 years old. That's sad, but I mean, he did live a long time after it's true. his I mean, original diagnosis. It's sad, may he rest in peace. When asked why the family didn't leave, Carmen gave a different reason in two different interviews. One for Sally Jesse and one for a current affair. And here are those reasons. Where would we go? Children need stability. Even if it's going to kill them. Hopefully it won't kill them. Sally, that would have been the first choice we would have had. But every time we did leave the house, it would follow us. I'd go to work and the computer system would go down or the phone system would go down. The people at work are the ones that gave me the phone number to the people that finally helped me. My husband went to work. His car, he start, he parked and went inside the building. As he did, the car started back up and drove into the building. We didn't want our family members harmed by whatever was harming us. It was bad enough. That's another inconsistency. Like I do feel like there's some inconsistencies in this story. Just a couple sentences ago, you had mentioned that they lived in the house for a total of two years. Yes. According to one of the sources, Carmen and the rest of the family didn't start experiencing paranormal activity till after a year. Correct. So that's really... Well, I do see what you're saying, and I do take it like that, too. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it wasn't that they didn't start experiencing paranormal activity. It was that she didn't believe the children like she didn't experience it until a year in okay that really gives her a year of believing right Correct. before they left which really isn't that long it's really not but it is when you're talking about like sonorization your children being molested where the niece and i believe this is the day that she claims that she started believing the niece was saying someone was like in her room and she ran and got Carmen and Carmen came back and the niece was like clinging to her. And the niece was saying, oh, they're coming. Like, do you feel them? They're coming. Carmen said at that moment, she didn't know what she was talking about, but she figured out there was like a heaviness mm -hmm. that you could feel. And let me play a clip for you of what she saw. And the third time she did that and I pushed her back, I saw an arm, the knuckles, the joints and the wrist go up under her long nightshirt, up over her breast and back through the wall. At that point, I realized something was going on. 
I agree that if things like that were happening, you would leave. But overall, you know, you can look at it a different way. A year yeah, there really is more isn't, than one way to look at it. It's not really that long. And you may tell yourself, like, we're just going to stick this out until his treatment's done. Right. You know, I don't know how long he had to take that treatment. There could have been a variety of things. And realistically, nobody really did get hurt. And the family does claim that the exorcism worked and they themselves are no longer haunted and neither is the house. Carmen and Alan have gotten divorced and Carmen is remarried and now goes by the name Reed. She is writing a book and she claims that this book will be a more thorough version of the story and also have tips for helping people deal with a haunting of this sort. She seems to believe that the family might have a bit of a gift. She stated that when she was little, she had imaginary friends. As she grew, she believed that they were imaginary friends because that's what she was told by adults, right? That's what they tell you. But now that she looks back, she claims that she's not so sure. She also believes that Philip potentially saw spirits when he was three and six years old. At three, she claims he was afraid of a wooded area because of an unseen man. And at the age of six, he saw a levitating priest that wasn't there in a monastery. That visual is so scary to me. It's like... I mean, anybody levitating is scary. Anybody levitating is scary, but I guess I think about, in The Conjuring Part 2, the the nun. So now I'm thinking of, like, the priest, the male version of the nun. Right. Like, that's the visual I get. (laughs) He's probably a nice guy. Why is he floating? (laughs) (laughs) These days, I guess she cleanses homes and she says sometimes paranormal investigators reach out to her for help binding spirits. So I guess that's what you do, Mandy. You bind the spirits and you send them back to where from which they came. But how does one bind? I don't know. (laughs) No one else, including the upstairs neighbor, other tenants or owners have experienced any paranormal activity in the home. Neighbors and the upstairs tenant that were around the family at the time seem very adamant that the house isn't haunted and possibly even a bit hostile by the claims of haunting. On one hand, I can understand why they may feel hostile toward it. I mean, if these people are saying that the house is haunted... And they have police coming over and investigators coming over. There's probably a lot of activity in their neighborhood. There's probably a lot of people possibly hearing about this and driving down their street. But at the same time, how do they know it's not haunted? Like, did they go in the house? Me and you were actually talking about that earlier, that there was actually a part in the Sally Jesse Raphael where somebody addressed the Karen. Yeah. And said, but you did all this. Did you go and try to help? You didn't go and try to help. Why didn't you do that? I feel on the fence about it. I don't feel like I could go one way or another. I do feel like I did think it was a load of crap at first. The more I looked into it, the more I thought it was potentially true. I think just like I think with all the other ones we do, I think both of us are usually always on the fence. We do see both sides. And I do think that if there's truth to this, it's been exaggerated by, you know, movies, media, even maybe the people that lived there. Absolutely. In the movie, they found bodies in the house. They burned down the house. It was 
only a small amount, the actual story. And some of these things in this actual story, like her going to all these realms of hell and, you know, that place where she said that she went with the souls. And I feel like this alone could have been a very terrifying movie. I mean, of course, they would exaggerate it as Hollywood always does. But I feel like this this true story could have been just a small amount exaggerated and been a very, very terrifying movie. Yeah, I agree. One point that I did want to touch on really quick, if it's true, like if those people, I mean, I know they were already dead, but let's say their spirits were around somehow and they knew what was happening to them. Is it the spirits getting angry getting angry and doing that to somebody else or maybe thinking that these people here are the workers that did that to them or are those workers still alive are they dead where are they at whoever was doing that is that person haunting the house and doing that to the family and i didn't think about it in that same context of the corpses were abused and so their spirits could be abusing in return which is kind of like a cycle that we actually see in real life right I did think about it in the context of if these corpses were actually abused, which, I mean, there is no real proof of that. But if they were, I do feel like that could cause a haunting because why do we have these traditions of you must do these proper things with bodies? The farther you go back, the more careful you must be and the more more respectful you must be to a body. So I, I do feel like that could potentially cause a haunting. Although I mean, now we do autopsies, we cut them up, things, but maybe because it's not done with malice, there's a difference there. Right. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, being assaulted when you're dead and if you're a ghost, I mean, maybe that could be just as traumatizing as if you were alive. Food for thought. Me and Mandy will soon be doing our next paranormal investigation episode, and we just happen to be spending the night in a home that was converted into a funeral home. Yeah, Isn't that coincidental? Um, it is. Yeah, I thought of that after we started doing this. I'm like, oh, great. We're going there. I'm excited. I mean, it's not there. It's a different one. No, it's a it's, total different one. It's in Indiana, but we're excited. Yeah, we are so excited. We can't wait. We just want to spend the night in a funeral home because we're weirdos. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed our episode on the true story behind a haunting in Connecticut. Was this a case of an actual haunting? Well, we'll leave that up to you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.